we come to the uh, the end of the book of Esther, um, and we're going to somewhat of a postscript to the story. Um, as we've we've talked about this, this is the journey of a young Jewish woman named Hadassah as she becomes the queen of the Medes and the Persians and then um, is used by God uh, to stop a, a pogrom, a holocaust uh, of the Jews. And in last last week we talked about um, how Esther uh, does that. And, um, and we want to <coughs> now come to uh, the aftermath um, she is. She manages in chapters six and seven. She she has managed to uh, move the situation in such a way that the king becomes aware uh, of the fact that the the Jews are the target of this uh, attempted genocide. That Esther is a Jew. Um, that Haman is corrupt um, and probably plotting to bring down the kingdom. And so Haman is uh, hoisted by his own petard. He's um, caught in his own trap. Uh, and he is executed summarily uh, when the king uh, comes back uh, from a walk in the garden and sees Haman climbing onto Esther's bed, um, trying to beg for his life. In chapter 8 and verse 1, I am still really loud. It is like, I, I, it's really loud. I don't know what's going on, um, but it's distracting to me that it's like kicking back at me. I don't know what's going on. I apologize, guys. It's just throwing me off. So let's take a look at chapter 8 and verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told uh, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, I'm not going to get into all this, every detail of this, but um, Esther, having been granted um, all of the, the possessions of the enemy of the Jews, she asks the king for um, to reverse the ruling he had made. Um, he had not known that he was doing this, but he had given power to Haman and to reverse the ruling that basically had given uh, orders that on uh, this one particular day, uh, the Jews were to be all gathered up and executed. Unless you think that that was something that, that sounds a little weird, it's like who could possibly logistically do this? Uh, historically, this kind of this kind of uh, group extermination, genocide, is not that uncommon um, in history. When when empires uh, find that they are threatened by a group of people, it's not uncommon for them to just gather them up um, under some legal justification and get rid of them. And so, um, so this is a very real threat that she's facing. And the king, um, the king of Hajuerus, because he's a Persian king, and because of the way that their religion and their theology and their their uh, government works, he is not allowed to simply revoke um, a law. He can't just say, oh, well, never mind, that was a bad law, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, he is bound by this code that says that Ahura Mazda, his god, um, has appointed him to bring balance to the world. 
Um, I almost said to the force, but that's not right. Um, he, he is, he's appointed to keep good and evil in balance. And so his laws, his orders, his decrees, um, you can't just revoke them because they're about the balance of the universe. So instead, he says to Esther and to Mordecai, I can't get rid of this law, but if you can, um, if you can come up with a solution to this, uh, go ahead and do it. Um, and so uh, the, in verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, um, and on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded and concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors, the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. By the way, Esther 8.9 is the longest verse in the Bible. Um, so if you want to torture your kids that are memorizing scripture, that's the one to go to. Um, he wrote it in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and they sent it by letter, the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, um, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So you have this, um, the answer to this problem is, okay, I can't reverse the law, so what Mordecai sends out is a decree that the Jews have the right to defend themselves. Um, that seems like a pretty reasonable solution. So let's go ahead to chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king of Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Shusha, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, also killed uh, a bunch of people with Persian names. Um, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And, and the king is going to then say to them, they're going to come at the end of the day, the king comes and says, what, what, what would you have us do? And he says, give us one more day to make sure that all of our enemies um, are, uh, are removed. And he gives them another day and, and they go through and they wind up wiping out um, in verse chapter nine and ver uh, chapter nine and verse sixteen, uh, they got relief from their enemies and killed seventy five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And um, 
I'm going to get into a, a little bit of this, but does this passage trouble you? Because it troubles me. It, it's difficult for me to reconcile what happens here with the message of so much of the Bible. Here are God's chosen people who have been, you know, they've been spared and they've been protected, and the solution to their problem is to kill 75,000 people. Now we read that and we go, okay, if you read that as a story, you go, okay, great story, moving on. This is not a story. This is a fact. The people of God killed 75,000 people. And it is so easy to dismiss the weight of that. Uh, It's so easy to just kind of put ourselves at a distance to that. But imagine what would happen in our society, and we live in a world of, you know, 8 billion people or whatever, if 75,000 people were wiped out in one place. We would be calling for war crimes trials, and we would be looking to lay blame, and we'd probably be sending cruise missiles, because that's our response to just about anything some days. This passage has always troubled me, and to be honest, it troubles me today. Because is this passage giving us permission to violently defend ourselves when we are persecuted in the world? And if it is, how does that fit with the rest of the Bible? How does it fit with Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me? Jesus saying, you know, blessed are the are the persecuted. You're you're going to be attacked. You're going to be thrown out of your synagogues. You're you're going to be thrown to wild beasts. Um, How does that how does it jive with the the history of the church where the Christians of the first three centuries were were willing to go to the go to be fed to the lions and sacrificed and decimated rather than deny Christ? So I want to share with you a couple of, of thoughts I think that we can we can take this text and jive it with the rest of the Bible. The first thing that I want to I want to share you, with you is that um these were people who were following through with Haman's plan. Haman's plan was to wipe out the Jews. And the decision to counterman that, to defend yourselves, was given in the third month of the year. And the actual order to destroy the Jews was in the twelfth month of the year. Now, those of you that passed math, that is nine months for people to decide what to do. So the people who on the twelfth, the night of the twelfth month, twelfth uh, night of the twelfth month of the calendar, got their swords ready and got their armor polished and got ready to go out the door and kill the Jews. Would it be fair to say they probably um, had murderous intent? 
had hatred in their hearts. We, we read in the text, there, there's a whole bunch of people that decide, you know what, instead of helping out with this whole thing, we're just going to go ahead and help out the Jews because this Mordecai, Mordecai guy is kind of scary. He's getting a lot of power. We don't want to destabilize the emperor. We're gonna, empire. We're going to go with, uh, we're going to go ahead and support the Jews. In particular, it seems that the ten sons of Haman were willing to do whatever it took to get rid of the Jews. The, the text refers to them as the enemies of the Jews. Literally, the, the, um, the aggressors. It, it, elsewhere, the text describes them as those that hated the Jews. And so, when we read this text, we have to remember that it's not dealing with just the average person who makes fun of you because you go to church on Sunday. This is dealing with, let's just take the number that appears, uh, 75,000 people who were willing to slaughter a group of people who had done nothing against them. Uh, the second thing that I want to point out to you, and, it, and it's in chapter 8, verse 11, chapter 19 and verse 16, um, it appears... Verse, chapter 8 and verse 11, it said the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. This, this response, this, um, this violence, let's just call it what it is, was not a vendetta ride against Haman and his cohorts. The people, the Jews, gathered themselves together in one place in every city, built defenses, and prepared themselves to defend from the aggression of their enemies. This was not the Jews going door to door and saying, Haman or Hebrews. Um, you know, uh, it, it, this is not what's going on. They are literally, they're gathering in their places and they're waiting to see if anybody comes to kill them. And if somebody comes to kill them, they respond. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of a martial art called Krav Maga? You ever heard that term? All right, Krav Maga is a, is a Hebrew martial art. It was developed in the ghettos of Czechoslovakia um, in the, the late 1930s, early 1940s when the Nazis were gathering the Jews. And, and basically, as the Nazis went through um, the, the, uh, the Jewish areas, they, they would do things like find women who were alone and um, I, do horrible things to them and uh, drag men out of their workplaces and shatter stores and all kinds of stuff. And Krav Maga was actually developed to be the quickest, fastest way to kill somebody and drag them inside the door before somebody else saw it. That is what Krav, Krav Maga is. Krav Maga is meant to be a lethal martial art, a very fast, very effective martial art. So when it gets used in uh, UFC and MMA, I just laugh because um, that's not Krav Maga. Um, Krav Maga was literally how do you teach a little Jewish housewife to kill a Nazi soldier who puts a gun to her head and then hide the body. That was, that was what Krav Maga was. Um, the Jews could have basically put together a prescription list of everybody that had been involved in Haman's attacks and said, let's just wipe them out ahead of time. 
Let's just deal with all of our enemies right, a, right on the way. By the way, this is a very common tactic in, in the Roman Empire. Later on, a few centuries later, you would just make a list of everybody that was an enemy of the state, and you would post it on the, on the board outside of the, the gymnasium, and people would just go through the list and go, oh, yeah, I know him, and go and kill that guy. Um, and uh, and this, was, this was pretty common practice, but not the Jews. The Jews gathered together, and they prepared to defend themselves. So the first justification of this is that there are intentional enemies attacking a whole people. The second thing is that those people who are being attacked intentionally defended themselves. The Jews did not go hunting for their enemies. They gathered in their locations and fought defensively. And thirdly, I don't know if you noticed this, but this appears over and over in the, over in the text the Jews refused to plunder their enemies. They refused, although they were allowed by law. If you read the decree, they were allowed to take the possessions of their enemies. The Jews refused to do that. They did not plunder their enemies. Now, what does plunder your enemies mean? Um, well, plunder your enemies, you know, we think of plunder, we generally think of Vikings or pilgrims, uh, yeah, pilgrims, pirates. Um, pilgrims, pilgrims plundered too, but let's not get into that. Um, the, uh, but normally we think about the Vikings, you know, rowing up and, and burning things and taking all the gold and silver and all the, all the pretty girls away. Um, to, to plunder their enemies in this context um, was to enslave their daughters and kill their sons and then take their possessions for their own and split them amongst themselves. In other words, the Jews refused to use the attacks of their enemy for their own advancement, for their own power, for their own wealth. These are actions, what happens here in in Esther, are actions in the face of Holocaust and we, excuse me, as modern Christians in the modern Western church have no idea what that word means. Now we have it in our heads. If you've ever gone to the Holocaust museums, um, the one in Washington D.C., the the Hall of Silence, or the one in uh, the one in um, the one in Israel is is like mind-boggling. Um, but but you you go to the and we we have in our head we have this mind um, National Geographic's just did a um, just did a series uh, about um, uh, about the I can't remember the name of the family the family that actually protected um, uh, the hiding place and Frank um, the Frank family um, National Geographic is doing a TV show about about the German family that protected them. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we, we can kind of absorb it. We can read the diary of Anne Frank. We can, uh, we can, we kind of see it, but we don't know what it really, really means. And so sometimes we, as Christians, we, we get, you know, um, we, we make fun sometimes of those who, uh, you know, the people that are so easily offended about things and we say, grow up and, and be mature and, oh, you know, sticks and to- stones may hurt my, may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But when somebody calls us names, when somebody identifies us, we, we tend to get very kind of upset. We, we tend to think even, you know, we're being persecuted for our faith. We're, we're being, we've never faced a, homo, a holocaust like this. 
the potential of millions of people being executed simply because of the God they pray to. We, we don't know what that means in our world. We, we just can't wrap our heads around that. Um, but these are actions in the face of a holocaust. And guess what that means? It means they are not prescriptive of our behavior. This is not permission for us to arm ourselves and wait for the government to come and close our doors. To oppose the order of our of our government and the, the systems that are in place. Um, just because, well... I'm being persecuted or I'm uncomfortable. There is a difference between protection of the community in the face of unbelievable evil and malice and violence for personal or even, I'm going to get people mad at me, it'll be two weeks in a row, national gain. We are so easy to just use violence to solve problems. It's so quick. It's so effective. And we can even say that it was self-defense. One of the things that you learn as as a martial artist, one of the things that you learn is that you do not get to just defend yourself. Now, I'm a pacifist. People say, all right, so you're a pacifist. You shoot guns. You do martial arts. How does that make you a pacifist? Well, I truly believe that in order to be a true pacifist, you have to have the capacity to do great violence and choose not to do it. Because somebody who can't defend themselves, they can claim they're a pacifist all they want, but they can't defend themselves. I believe everybody should be able to defend themselves and then choose not to use violence. But as a martial artist, one of the things that we learn very quickly is if I defend myself and then I go to court, which, trust me, you will. And I can't prove that the force that I used was um, equitable to the situation, that it was appropriate for the situation. Um, I can face criminal charges. And, and um, you know, as, as I'm teaching, uh, as I'm teaching uh, martial arts, um, I will often say things like, if I do this, I will rip your shoulder out of its socket. And everybody goes, why would you say that? Because I can rip your shoulder out of its socket. I have to choose to be appropriate in my response. Um, I have to choose to, to that the reaction is justified by the action. Uh, I have, and we don't need them in New Hampshire anymore, but um, I have a... a I have a permit to carry a concealed firearm. I've taken specific training on how to to draw and fire, how to assess situations, how to deal with these things. I don't carry a firearm on a regular basis. You say, why don't you carry a firearm on your regular basis? Because I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to take the chance that I draw because of something that was... I perceived as a threat that wasn't really a threat. I'm just not ready to take that risk. Now, police officers, we we jump on their case all the time. Remember that they live in a world where everything is a threat. But in this situation, the action that was taken 
was actually a moderate action of protection in the face of inconceivable malice and hatred. Now, having said that, I want you to realize they only killed 75,000 people. You say, only? Yes, only. Do you know how many soldiers the Persian emperor could call upon? He could assemble an army well in excess of one million soldiers did so in the invasion of Greece. This king, by the way, did so in the invasion of Greece. Can you imagine what it would have been like for one million trained Persian soldiers to descend on the Jewish population of the Roman Empire? How much less it was as horrible as it is that 75,000 people died, 75,000 enemies were, were killed in the defense of the people of God and probably preserved the empire from death and violence on a scale that would boggle the mind. Why do I bring all this up? Because then, afterwards, Mordecai and Esther say this in chapter 9 and verse 20. Mordecai recorded these things, sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, what is, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king and he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should be returned on his own head, that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows, therefore they called these days the cast of the die. Purim. After the term poor. Think about that for a second. The festival remembering this is called the casting of the die. When you roll dice, what are the odds that you roll what you want? I know none of you have ever played a game that involves that. All right. Um, I, by the way, when I was a school teacher, had mastered the art of throwing the di dice that came with the Trivial Pursuit set to always get the number I wanted. And I had memorized the, the locations of different squares. I don't know if you ever played Trivial Pursuit. It's a round board and, and roll-agains and, uh, and different things are a certain number of spaces away from each other. And I used to really frustrate my students by always rolling, or like 90% of the time, rolling what I wanted. Yeah, don't, yeah. 
Anyway, um, I've forgotten most of them now, Christy. It would take a long time. I, I had one of the sets memorized, so I would play against my kids. And the challenge was if you played Trivial Pursuit against me and the entire class played against me as one player, and if they could beat me, I gave everybody a 100 test grade. And no one ever beat me because, A, I could roll the dice, and, B, I had about 75% of the cards memorized. Um, uh, one time a class got close. They had all, they had five pieces. There, there are six pieces. They had five pieces, and I had none, and then I ran the board on them. Um, yeah, never played. I, I'm not as good at it as I am anymore. But anyway, they called this the roll of the dice. Because sometimes events go in your favor and sometimes they don't. I've always wondered why Esther never names God. He's never named in this book. And I think from the human point of view, this book teaches us a certain humility before the affairs of man. See, we can't say with any great confidence unless it is clearly stated in Scripture that something will or won't happen for us. There is a false belief circulating around Christianity that you have the ability to pray a certain way and claim blessings from God and He is obligated to give them to you. That is absolute hogwash. God is under no obligation to us and He is not a genie in the heavens waiting to answer your requests. No matter what the TV preachers say. In this case, things worked out for the Jews. But there is no guarantee that things will always work out for our perception of what's good for me. It's a cast of the die. Now, God in his sovereignty knows what's going on. And God has chosen us as his people. But that does not mean that as long as it's good for me, it is going to happen. It does not mean that as long as it's good for us, it is going to happen. From our point of view, sometimes it's just a roll of the dice. You say, but I did all the right things. I, I checked all the right boxes. I prayed all the right prayers. I recited all the right scripture. I don't understand why this thing didn't happen. It should have I wanted it to happen. I manipulated Bible verses to say that God wanted it to happen. Why didn't it happen? From our point of view, sometimes it's just a roll of the dice. All we need to do is look at the Holocaust to see that. And if you have not studied the Holocaust in the early 20th century, the mid-20th century, um, and I don't often say this, but shame on you. The potential for evil in human heart transcends our potential for good. That's the nature of sin. And while we talk about the six million Jews that were murdered in the Holocaust, and that was truly terrible, we also forget that gypsies, the Romani people, Slavs were murdered, homosexuals were murdered, intellectuals were murdered. At one point, Protestants who wouldn't conform to the Nazi flag were murdered. 
somewhere around 20 million people when we include what the Russians then proceeded to do afterwards were slaughtered for no other reason than who they were. No crime, no deficit. Oh, and by the way, anyone who was judged socially impaired, mentally impaired, physically impaired, they they went to. A, a, a horror so unbelievably unimaginable, I can't even understand a, a situation in the world where a group of people collectively said it's too expensive to shoot these people. There's got to be a way to kill them by the thousands. So here's Esther. Shouldn't there have been an Esther and Mordecai to prevent the Holocaust? And yet there wasn't. Because unfortunately, in the affairs of man, from our point of view, sometimes things are just a cast of the die. You say, how does that fit with a sovereign God? Can I be honest with you? I wish I knew. I wish I understood why horrible things happen in the world. I wish I understood why things like the, the Rwandan genocide, the, Congres, the, the Congo Wars, which, by the way, is still ongoing. Millions of people slaughtered because uh, a century and a half ago, Belgians divided the people of a nation into two groups and told them to hate each other. I wish I could explain to you uh, a, a rational reason why the Uyghurs in the, in the west of China persecuted and killed by the Chinese government. I wish I could explain to you what happened in southern Sudan. I wish I could explain to you why, why uh, horrible, terrible things happened to whole class of people. The only one I can tell, thing I can tell you is sometimes it's just a roll of the dice. Now one day God's going to explain it all to us. You say, that is a horrible sermon. That is so massively depressing. Because this is the, the flip side of last week. So what will you do? Are you content to be a Christian in the light? And what will it look like in the dark? Are we, we happy to go along because there's really not a significant price to be paid? Are, are, we, are we willing to, to go through it because as near as we can tell, the dice will always roll in our favor? Your faith has to be buried so deep in the foundation of who you are. When the challenges of this world come up, no matter how significant or insignificant we might gauge them to be, we stay true no matter how the dice fall. Some days we'll be on top. Some days we will walk in green pastures beside still waters. 
And sometimes we will be in the valley of the shadow of death. I hope and pray that we never have to live through the threat of something like this. But I would remiss if I didn't say there are Christians all over the world who are. Systematic, aggressive persecution for no other reason than the God that they pray for to. We are not guaranteed the sunlight. Though we are the people of grace, we are not guaranteed that we will be liked, that we will be approved of, that we would not be rounded up simply for the God we pray to. Personally, I did not come to this God casually. It required a it requires a constant vigilance over my own attitude about what I deserve from the God I serve. Because I never know when the dice are going to fall my way. I never know if Haman is going to win or lose. But no matter how they fall, I'm not going to put my faith and trust in the luck of the dice. I'm going to put my faith and trust in the sovereignty of God. And if he chooses to call us home early through violence, he chooses to call us home. If he chooses our world to turn against us you say he wouldn't do that that's a very privileged position we cannot trust our faith to the roll of the dice you join me in a word of prayer Jesus, real faith exists in a real world where the darkness of man has power. We like to believe that we are untouchable. That somehow we are haloed. And yet, the powers of this world come to bear against us. Some of us come to faith because of crisis and we need solutions. Some of us come to faith not because of something we need, but because we know in our hearts what is real and true. Some of us come to faith with answers some of us come to faith with questions. Help us all to come to faith looking for you.
May our faith run deep. May it face challenges. May it have hope in the face of the casting of the die. Be light in the face of the darkness. And always, may you be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.